I just want you to think for a moment of the symbols you wear and the, the people who influenced you to buy those symbols. You know, celebrity endorsements, whether athletes or somewhere else, try to establish a, a fundamental link between a product, a brand, and, and the celebrity. It, it wants you to think, whatever I admire about this person, uh, by purchasing this product or committing myself to this brand, I will somehow be more like this person. And so we all wear particular symbols in part to demonstrate to those around us who we associate with and what we want to be like. So oddly enough, one of the world's most recognized symbol is a symbol of torture and death for common criminals. It's a cross. And the cross has one of the most polarizing celebrity endorsements. Jesus Christ. You know, more people in the world confess to be a Christian than any other religion, and certainly organizations doing good humanitarian work like the Red Cross contribute to the, the cross's recognition. But what story are people in our country, even our city, telling themselves about the cross and people who wear that symbol? I think we know that that connotation, that association is quite negative. But perhaps just as important is the story Christians are telling themselves about the cross. You see, the cross is on all kinds of things now. You see the cross show up on all kinds of headlines in the news. You, it can be a political symbol. It can be a stand-in for another Christian doctrine. And don't you think it's a bit strange, and I, I'm not here to, I'm not throwing shade on any church, I just, this is an observation. Don't you think it's a bit strange that, like, every church out there somehow finds a different way to draw the cross for their particular church? What story are Christians telling themselves about the cross? Because here's the thing, our, our vision of the cross fundamentally affects our understanding of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. So this morning, I want you to consider what do you see when you see the cross? And that's what we're going to consider this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Verses 22 through 38. I believe this can be found on page 895 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you are someone who takes notes, here is the main idea for this morning that will also serve as our outline. I think this passage uh, exhorts us to, encourages us to regularly check your vision to see if you see Christ clearly on his terms. And so this point will also serve as the outline. We'll look at it in three points. So before we jump into this passage, this is a one-off sermon. We are parachuting right into the middle of the gospel of Mark. Uh, And not just in the middle of Mark, but also a critical turning point in the gospel of Mark. 
Uh, Mark aims to demonstrate to his readers that Jesus is the anticipated Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied of. And Mark aims as a whole in his book to establish Jesus as the suffering king. So in Mark chapter 1 to 8, Mark weaves together different stories to demonstrably prove that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord of creation who controls the winds and the waves. He is the Lord who heals his people. He is the the Lord who exercises demons. He is the Lord who has the unbelievable ability and power to forgive sins as his kingdom comes. And then in Mark chapter 9 to 16, which we're not going to talk about a ton this morning, that the tone darkens because Jesus reveals to his disciples three times that he must go to the cross and suffer a humiliating death. And Mark's narrative ends with the crucifixion and a very abrupt resurrection narrative. But there's kind of a a second storyline going on in the Gospel of Mark that should also grab our attention as readers because, you know, when, when we read the Gospels, we should not primarily identify with Jesus, even though we very much want to become like Jesus. Oftentimes, the application in the gospel come by seeing how different characters uh, respond and interact with Jesus. And, And in Mark, the characters who interact with Jesus the most are his disciples. So, so Mark aims to teach his readers and future disciples about our discipleship as we watch how Jesus and his disciples relate to one another. And so both these narrative arcs, Jesus as the suffering king and the disciples' response to that revelation, they collide here in Mark chapter 8. So let's turn to our passage now. And we're going we're gonna to look at this passage as it unfolds. So we'll begin with the curious story in verses 22 to 26. And point one is to regularly check your vision. Verse 22, this is the word of the Lord. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, he being Jesus, and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he, Jesus, sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So yes, you heard and you read that story correctly. Mark describes the only instance in the Gospels of a two-part miracle. It's true in Mark. It's true in all of the Gospels. There's no other place in the Gospels that records a miracle that has two stages. We see here Jesus comes to Bethsaida with his disciples. Uh, We see that Jesus takes the man by his hand. He he removes him from the setting, and then he heals him in two stages, and then tells him 
to, uh, to go home and to not even enter the village. What, what a curious story. And so naturally, I think as Bible interpreters, we need to work hard to understand why this story is even here in this gospel. And we need to understand the story in light of the rest of Mark and in the other gospel narratives. Because in some ways, at first glance, if we read the story, this, this is a curious story and perhaps an alarming story. Because we know that Jesus is able to heal other blind people instantaneously, whether that's with a solve, whether it's just speaking words into existence. We know at a bigger level that Jesus is able to heal people without even seeing them. We know that Jesus is able to exercise greater power, at least in our human calculations, without a hiccup, such as raising the dead, uh, such as raising the dead, such as raising Lazarus from the dead. We know that Jesus always acts with intention and purpose. So, so what gives here? Well, there, I don't think there's any reason to doubt the historicity of this miracle, but I do think there are multiple purposes for why Mark includes this miracle in his narrative. Given the upcoming narrative, we are going to uh, look at it in a moment. We're going to see that this story doubles as an illustration, uh, a dramatization of those who follow Christ. Someone can walk with Christ and yet have trouble seeing him for who he really is. You may think you see Jesus clearly, but your vision is actually blurry. And I, and I think that's the point of this story, both for the disciples in that day and for us. We need regular eye checkups with the Scripture Optometry Office to check our vision of Jesus. And, and this healing serves as a timeless reminder that we often have a limited perception and we have a need for greater understanding of Jesus' mission. So after all, no Christian sees everything about Christ clearly at conversion or really at any point in their life. And I think this point of, of seeing clearly is a bit harder than we expect. I think we, we all think we see the world clearly. We think we understand why people are the way they are and why things are the way they are. So, of course, to no one's surprise, as, as we get older, it becomes more difficult to find truly open-minded people who are willing to change their initial vision of the world. And I think this is true in our spiritual lives as well. We all have moral and spiritual blind spots. Blind spots that you can even change as we uh, cling to different biblical truths and promises in different seasons of life. So let me give you an example. There was a book that came out in the middle of the pandemic called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And I think many in this church have read it. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to. It's such an uh, 
accessible and encouraging book. And, and if peer pressure works for you, uh, Gentle and Lowly has nearly uh, 9,100 reviews on Amazon with a 4.8 out of 5 star rating. And let me tell you, as someone who regularly buys Christian books on Kindle, most Christian books never hit anything close to those kinds of metrics. So, so how does a book about the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers take a large portion of evangelicalism by storm? Like, just think about the title of the book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. For Christians, how is there even a market for this book? Why did thousands of Christian adults fork over $11 to read that Jesus loves and cares for them? They could have just returned to their roots. They could have just saying, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why does a book like that come to grip many Christians in our world today? Well, I think the reason why that, that book was important is because I think it actually revealed a blind spot for so many Christians. That when so many of us as Christians look at Jesus, we either believe that Jesus is out to get us, or we believe that Jesus is distant from us. For some reason, it's really hard for us to believe that Jesus loves us. Well, we're not in Matthew 11 this morning, which is where that gentle and lowly passage can be found. Uh, but we're going to look at Jesus from a different angle. But I, I hope this point is clear. And I think it will become clear as we look at the illustration. We are always at risk of skewing how we see Jesus. All of us, we are always emphasizing some things that he said and did, and we are downplaying other things that Jesus has said or did. Different seasons of life can make certain character traits or promises of Jesus come alive to us while we uh, while others are, are downplayed for various reasons. No Christian, I think, plans to have a skewed view of Jesus, just like no one plans for their ocular vision to get worse. But if you give spiritual eyes enough time and wear and tear, I think things can get out of focus. So right up front, as hearers and readers of God's Word, I think we should ask ourselves, when was the last time I visited the Bible to get my Jesus vision checked? I would encourage you this summer, maybe if you have a little bit of time, to read the Gospels. Try to read the Gospels for the first time. To, 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 to be surprised by some of the things that Jesus has done. To not go to your favorite passages right away, but to see Jesus for who he says he is and who God has revealed him in the Gospels. And I think we will see that this question is important because our vision of Jesus informs how we respond to him. So let's go to our second point, which is to see 
Christ, to see if we can see Christ. Let's read Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through 33. Oh, sorry, verses uh, 28 to 33. 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So Mark begins this section by describing a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus asked his disciples on their road. Um, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And my first thought is, I mean, it, I'm sure Jesus knows, but in some ways, it's nice to know Jesus is not actively following the tabloids or reading the polls or immersed in the gossip on his latest feet. And we're not surprised that the, the disciples have a good pulse on how others are talking about their leader, talking about Jesus. And so they say, word on the street, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, another prophet, which in, in Israel-like terminology, this, this is very good company to be listed with. But then Jesus asks one of the most important questions in human history, a question that resonates down to the ages to us today. Who do you say that I am? After all, Jesus' mission is not decided by the court of public opinion, but by the judgment of every individual believer across all time. And so Peter gives the right answer. He says, you are the Messiah. And this is not merely the right answer. To proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that Jesus is the collective hope of Israel. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. This word Messiah is synonymous with the word Christ, and this word has not been used in the Gospel of Mark to this point since Mark chapter 1, verse 1. For, for Israel, to, to be the Messiah was to be an end-time conquering king who would deliver Israel from their foreign captors and establish God's kingdom. The Messiah would establish and protect an everlasting kingdom characterized by peace and safety. So by giving the right answer, Jesus, uh, Peter shows Jesus that he sees something essential to Jesus' mission. And having seen Jesus clearly, Jesus, for the first time in Mark, begins to openly describe the nature of his ministry. No more parables, no more analogies. Jesus reveals exactly where his ministry is headed in verse 31 and 32. 
it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. It was necessary that these things would happen. And so Jesus, essentially, to Peter's confession, says, yes, you are right, but it's a yes and mission. Let me tell you about what it looks like to be the Messiah. So having seen something clearly, Peter demonstrates that he, in fact, has not seen clearly. His vision is blurry. Our passage tells us that uh, uh, Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. And in Peter's defense, uh, there, there was no ancient precedence in that day for the Jewish Messiah to be a suffering Messiah. But nonetheless, Jesus is revealing, if I am the Messiah, this is who I truly am. This is what I have come to do. We don't know that the content of Peter's rebuke, only that in Jesus' response, that it has to do with primarily human concerns. We know that Jesus' explicit mission shocked Peter. And so Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter with the strongest of words. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. To think in human terms is to no longer be a disciple of Jesus, but to be a disciple of Satan. When disciples seek to play God to determine what God's mission should be, uh, rather than follow Jesus, they become satanic. So what are we to make of this exchange? Well, this is the turning, part, turning point in Mark. Jesus goes from the Messiah who has the power to, to, to heal and to affect creation to the, the Jesus who will suffer. Peter's initial confession that Jesus Christ is analogous to the blind man is like, is like, or sorry, Peter's initial confession that Jesus Christ is analogous to the blind man seeing people that look like trees walking. And if the disciples, and if you and I are going to see Christ clearly like the blind man did eventually, Jesus makes it clear that we must see him as the suffering king. But Peter is not able to see beyond human concerns to God's concerns, and so Christ looks like a tree walking to the disciples. I think what's interesting and intentional about the book of Mark is that there are two more occasions in this gospel where Jesus will explicitly tell his disciples what his mission is. Jesus makes it clear in both instances in Mark 9 and 10 that he will be publicly shamed, he will be killed, and he will rise again. And then contrasted with those two stories, the disciples uh, will say something that totally contradicts fundamentally what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Uh, in in uh, Mark chapter 9, the disciples are arguing on the road after that announcement about who is the greatest. 
And then in Mark chapter 10, after the announcement of the suffering Messiah, the suffering king, James and John ask uh, Jesus if they can serve with him in his earthly glory. So what is Mark telling us in this conversation? Well, first, he wants to make emphatically clear that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, but he is a Christ unlike what human expectations and human concerns could ever conjure up, whether in a lab. If if humans had all the time in the world, all the paper to write, all the word processors to type, apart from God's grace, we would never come up with this solution for man's greatest problem. So 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 Mark wants to make clear that Jesus is the Christ. But I also think uh, Mark wants to make clear to those who are following Christ to check your vision of Jesus because it is harder than we think to see Jesus as the suffering Messiah clearly. Because I think here here is a, a scary but important reality. Even as Christ followers, we are always at risk to reinterpret the cross, to minimize the shame and the rejection associated with that symbol. We are always at risk of trying to fit Christ into our agenda, into our story, rather than to submit to Christ's agenda and to find ourselves in Christ's story. Uh, Disciples of Jesus, you and I, we are capable of worshiping a Christ made in our own image, an image that has uh, a certain set of desires and goals and ambitions that actually uh, contradict and oppose the real Christ. We, in turn, can take up a cross that looks nothing like Jesus' cross, a cross that's consumed with human concerns rather than God's concerns. So why did God and why did Jesus see it fit to put a cross at the center of his ministry? Well, if you're here this morning and you don't know yourself to to be a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here to hear a message about Christ as a suffering king, which is at the very core of the good news that Christians believe and proclaim. One reason why Jesus died on a cross is because God has seen it fit to take what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has seen it fit to take what is weakness in the world and see it as strength. The Bible knows that a suffering king at the center of the good news of the gospel is is a stumbling block to those who are religious and foolishness to those who maybe don't self-identify as religious. But secondly, the, the reason why there is a cross at the center of Christianity is because the, the cross was the way to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for all who trust and believe in Jesus. 
the Bible teaches that a, a holy God created people to have fellowship with him, but this holy God cannot dwell with sinners. Perhaps the most empirical truth that comes out of the Bible is that everyone is a sinner. And so, so God made a way for his people over time to have fellowship with him through death. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. But if something or someone innocent dies in the place of that individual, that person can have fellowship again with God. So before Jesus, in the Old Testament, there were animal sacrifices to remind people that fellowship with God came at a price. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God sent his only son, the God-man Christ Jesus, into the world to live the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died to pay for the sins for all who would trust in him. But of course, even in this declaration of Jesus here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicted that he would rise again. And so the, the good news of the gospel also is not that just Jesus died for your sins, but Jesus was raised from the dead, demonstrating that cosmic forces and death and sin could not hold him. And as we just sang, having endured death as the suffering king, Jesus now reigns as the resurrected king. The death and the resurrection of Jesus that he foretells in Mark 8 established his credibility as Savior and Lord of the universe. So if you're here and you don't know yourself to be a Christian or you've got some serious questions about Christianity, I want you to hear this invitation from the king. If you repent of your sins, if you turn away from your sins, and trust in his work on the cross, you can be saved. If you renounce human concerns, self-preoccupation, and take up God's concerns, God-preoccupation, you can have fellowship with God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, and maybe for the first time this idea of suffering king does not sound totally absurd to you, then I encourage you to talk to someone. Uh, use to see Christ as the suffering king shows that God might be working on your heart so that you might see God more clearly. So I encourage you to talk to the person who brought you. Talk to me afterwards. God is pleased to save those who believe in the apparent foolishness of the suffering king. Well, do you, do you remember the discipleship storyline I told you about earlier? Well, just as the suffering king storyline culminates in the crucifixion of Jesus, the discipleship storyline finds its climax there too. Do you know who, who the first person is in Mark to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the suffering king? It's not a disciple. It's, it, it's the centurion at the cross. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we're going to consider the implications for this now in point three. 
What does it look like, not just to see Jesus as a suffering king, but to see Jesus on his terms? Jesus subsequently clarifies the vision for whoever would follow after him. And so while there are many interpretations of what it might look like to follow a suffering king, Jesus here makes it explicit. Let's look at verse 34 to 38. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." We don't don't have time to dive into every detail in this text, but I want to consider a couple of major themes. Jesus here at the outset gives an invitation to follow after him, followed by four reasons to endure cross-bearing. And by identifying his disciples with the cross, Jesus makes it clear to all believers and all those interested in Christianity that Jesus is not a bait-and-switch savior. He's not going to woo you in with promises of wealth and riches and then say, oh, gotcha, sorry. Didn't know you were signing up for a life of opposition and shame and persecution. With Jesus, there's no fine print. The terms of conditions are very clear to all who approach him. So what does it mean to be a disciple according to Jesus? Well, first, I think it's clear that to be a disciple of Jesus is to know, first and foremost, that you and I, we are not called to an idea. We're not even called to a worldview, both of which are good. But to be a disciple of Jesus is to uh, live a life that Christ himself embodied. Jesus denied himself. Jesus took up a cross in submission to the Father's plan. Jesus, as it were, wore a cross and expects his disciples to do the same. But still, this language here of deny yourself, bear a cross, can be a bit confusing. So, so, so what exactly does, is Jesus calling disciples to? Well, first he says to deny yourself. And, and denial in the New Testament is often the intentional disassociation from a relationship with a particular person. So if if it's helpful for you, other words that maybe make sense of this passage could also be um, renounce yourself or disown yourself. Just like when uh, this word denial, it's the same word that is used when Peter denies Jesus. Peter says, I have nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus is telling us to deny, not him, but to deny yourself. So so self-denial is intentionally stepping away from putting yourself first and instead putting 
Christ first. And then Jesus says, take up your cross. This practice of taking up your cross refers to the practice of forcing a condemned person to carry their crossbeam publicly to uh, their execution site. Why is that important? Well, this showed that while this person carrying the crossbeam had rebelled against authority, that this person was so completely conquered that their last act in life would be to carry the instrument of their death to the place of their death. Cross-bearing is a demonstration of submission to authority. So, so, So to bear a cross is to be as submitted to Christ as a condemned criminal to their death. But let's look at verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus here uh, is, uh, is, is telling us that, that those who would call themselves Christians must be willing to represent him even if we face opposition and shame and suffering, even death for Christ's sake. I just want to speak a moment to the members here at Hinson. I, I love Hinson, and I love all of you. And we place a strong emphasis on our corporate life together, and that is absolutely right. The, the Christian life is inescapably corporate. The Christian life is never private. The Christian life is deeply personal. And at the end of the day, Jesus calls for individuals to follow him, even as Jesus creates a people for himself. And so discipleship is first and foremost vertical. It's between you and Jesus. And this verse is not just for those who are counting the cost of, of coming to Jesus. It's uh, also, it's, it's for those who have walked with Jesus for a long time. If Christ is your king, this is a verse for you today. But with that said, discipleship is also horizontal. We are in this walk together. And so I think just uh, something we can take for our discipleship with one another, I think discipleship must be in part helping each other see where each of us is tempted to save our lives, as it were, to save our lives, as Jesus says in this passage. Uh, To save our life would be to live a life to avoid opposition or shame, or suffering, or death for our faith. Discipleship should be uh, living with one another and pointing out where we are tempted to pursue acceptance and glory and comfort and safety at the expense of our faith. Verse 36 and 37 are, are rhetorical questions that drive this point home. 
What does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? It benefits them nothing. Notice here that this verse, in many ways, was the deal that Satan offered Jesus in the desert. You remember the, that deal? Jesus, or Satan offers Jesus, he says, I will give you the kingdoms of this world and their splendor if you will fall down and worship me. Satan was offering Jesus a kingdom without a cross. A kingdom that emphasized Messiah, but totally downplayed suffering king. A kingdom without a cross, glory without pain. I think this is every person's dream apart from Christ. And Jesus goes further. He says, what can anyone give in exchange for his life? Nothing. God makes no such deals with people. So, so seeing Christ clearly as a disciple means we need to reject the vision of the world and its propaganda and that we need to see uh, the way of glory through rejection and suffering. So just kind of in summary, so what is at the core of what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is inviting you and I to a life where our primary allegiance is to him rather than to ourselves. When, when push comes to shove, who will you stand for? Will you stand with the real Christ according to his real words? Will you stand for a fake Christ according to your own desires? Or will you merely just stand for your own desires? Given who Jesus says he is and what he has done, will you embrace the message of a suffering Savior with your life and with your actions? And if you're like me, it's, it's actually easier to abstract this question away from my life. What, what, what do I mean by that? You know, for me, instead of thinking about what it looks like for me to live a life unashamed in Christ, I instead think in hypotheticals. So maybe you've done this exercise for yourself. You might wonder to yourself, all right, if I was kidnapped in a foreign country and they told me, renounce Christ or die, what would I do? I think that's often maybe the approach we take for this, with this passage, you know, like, when your life is in threat, uh, who are you going all in on, yourself or Jesus? And, uh, and I just want to ask you today, not what would you do in some dramatic situation, but what would associating with the suffering king look like for you today? Now, I'll, I'll confess, I, I think I've blown this recently. Um, some of you know, I am not a preacher by trade. I work for the city of Portland doing public policy and financial analysis work. And uh, we've had some more chances now that, depending on your perspective, uh, that the pandemic has lightened up a little bit. We've had some opportunities to get together and I work in an office of transplants. And so uh, a question that always comes up is, how did you get to Portland? 
And, and I would answer, I, I, I landed in Portland because of Hinson to do a pastoral internship. I, I think that's, that's fairly, fairly explicit, kind of shows like where my cards are at. But as I reflected on this passage, I recognized that I was actually shrinking back from being bold in my present identity in Christ. I, I talked about the internship here at Hinson, the residency, as uh, in a way that was unhelpfully vague. It was, it was an experience. It was an experience potentially distant from my current experience. I think I, I was basically saying, yeah, it was an internship. Yeah, n- not much different than serving with AmeriCorps or whatever else uh, people think of when they think of interning somewhere. I realized for myself, I could have led with, I'm a Christian. And so I came to Portland to study the Bible and to be immersed in the life of a church. As I look back, that was an opportunity for me to be more unashamedly, but not like in a total weirdo way, uh, associated with Christ. What, What would opportunities look like for you today? this week to, to, be, to, be a, to be a firm Christian in wherever you are. Because here, here is the call to a, a cross-shaped life, a life that is willing to associate with a suffering Messiah. Jesus offers, um, offers this to us. And here's the thing, and in conclusion, following Jesus is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Yes, in this passage, Jesus essentially promises every disciple, hey, this is what I promised you. I promised you a cross to bear and eternal life. But to know the suffering king along the way is to know his grace and to feel his love and to trust his peace. We can know his presence in prayer and have fellowship with God. And while we must deny ourselves, we can become our true selves in Christ because of the gospel, which is the greatest story ever told. So I want to encourage us with the last verse of the song we just sang. It's one of my favorite verses in all of music. Because as we persevere as disciples, God has given us, God has given us so much. He's given us one another. He has has given us everything we need to honor him in the midst of opposition. Haste thee on. From grace to glory, armed by faith, winged by prayer, joy to find in every station, God's own hand shall guide me there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, soon shall pass thy pilgrim days, hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you as those who recognize 
that yes, God, we have faith, and yet we ask you now for grace and faith. We ask for greater measures of grace. We ask for greater measures of faith to see your son clearly. And we pray that in seeing your son clearly, we would have courage to move in this world confident as those who have claimed the name of Christ. So God, we pray that you would bless us to that end. More grace, more faith to see Christ clearly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.